Again, open with me in the forms and prayers, 217, page 217. We will be confessing just questions 40, 41, and 42. I'll ask the questions and congregation please answer. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Why was he buried? Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Amen. Our scripture for this evening is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So please open with me in the Gospel account of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Hear now God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we open your word this evening, may we see the glorious and beautiful, majestic Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And may our eyes, our hands, and our lives be transformed. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II, the Japanese uh, took control of a particular island in the Philippines called Bataan. 75,000 Filipino and American troops were forced to make a deadly 65-mile march to prison camps. An estimated 17,000 men died during and after the infamous Bataan Death March. If you go to Bataan today, you will see that they have built a 95-meter-high cross atop a mountain to memorialize the Bataan Death March. They also put an elevator inside the cross so visitors can go to the top and see breathtaking scenery overlooking islands and several cities that were once abandoned and desolated but are now free and beautiful. The blood of the prisoners of war was waged and spilled for the freedom of the Filipino people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, so is our freedom from the slave market of sin as the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for us on the cross. And now, not only do we ascend the mountain of the Lord, but by setting our eyes on Christ and His glorious work, it becomes a lens how we see everything else. C.S. Lewis was on point when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And we must believe and behold Him as the Christ who restores all things in His humiliation and exaltation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when our eyes are set on eternal things, it changes the way we see everything else in the here and now. Our ignorance of who Christ is and His work causes and furthers unbelief and disobedience. And we see that in the lives of the disciples in our text. Peter, James, and John struggled with unbelief and disobedience here in our passage. Now let me share three action points to overcome unbelief and live an obedient life. So three points. Number one, we look to Jesus Christ in all His glory. See that in verses 2 to 4. Now the key word for the children is look. We look to Jesus Christ in all His glory. The second point is we listen to Jesus Christ the beloved Son of God. Verses 5 to 8, we listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. The key word is listen. And the third point is we live as people for whom Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead. You see that in verses 9 to 13. The key word is live. 
Look, listen, and live. Our text this evening clearly portrays the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, who restores all things. And let me propose that we respond first by looking to Jesus Christ in all his brilliance. Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 3 tells us, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now the transfiguration happened six days after Jesus. In chapter 8, asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? Peter answered that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the connection between Peter's confession and Jesus' transfiguration was significant. It's important to see the connection. You see, when God reveals himself to man, he usually does it through word and deed. We talked about that this morning. The transfiguration serves as the deed that vindicated the prophetic words of Jesus in the previous chapter about his suffering, death, and resurrection. But the transfiguration is unlike any other miracles. The miracle of transfiguration happened to Jesus himself. He was transfigured. There is no doubt that Jesus was in the state of glory when he was transfigured on that mountain before his disciples. And this tells us several things. First, is that the suffering and death of Jesus is from above and not below. Again, in chapter 8, he prophesied about his sufferings, his death, and resurrection. His transfiguration, as it is evident in the theme of the book of Mark, emphasizes on Christ's authority, even over his suffering and death. It is not the work of Satan nor mortal sinners. It is the plan and work of God that Jesus must suffer first. Again, this accents one of the major themes in the book of Mark, which is the authority of Jesus overall. The transfiguration of Jesus was a statement of his authority, even over his sufferings and death. And the second thing is that his suffering and his death are not the end of his work as the Christ. The transfiguration testifies to that. His transfiguration looks forward to his glorious resurrection, ascension, and enthronement in the heavenly places. Now the third thing that we can get here is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament. He is the type, we call him the antitype, I mean, who is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows from the Old Covenant. He is the fulfillment, the meta-narrative, the grand story, the climax of God's redemptive plan. 
the transfiguration of Jesus proclaims his supremacy over all. That he is the glorious Christ that the prophets prophesied about. It makes sense when you look at verse 4. It says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, if you are a real estate agent, my mother is a real estate agent, my sister is a real estate agent, if I am not a pastor, I will be a real estate agent. You should, real estate agents should know three important things as a selling point. Number one is location, location, location. Interestingly, in the scripture, location is also an important question. So take note of that. The location of Christ's transfiguration is on a mountain. Now, the theme of mountains in the Bible is essential. In our call to worship earlier and in our prayer, I mentioned that we are being summoned by God to ascend Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. In reading God's law, we often paint the picture of another mountain, Mount Sinai. We are condemned before Mount Sinai, but Christ ascended that mountain so we can ascend Mount Zion by being united with Him. So the mountain theme in the whole scripture is very Important. Now, Moses and Elijah are also mountain guys. If you notice, if you know your Old Testament, they receive, both receive God's word on Mount Sinai, which parallels the disciples hearing God's words in verse 7 of our passage. Moses and Elijah also had a glimpse of God's glory on Mount Sinai. And now they appeared with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, while the disciples also had a glimpse of the God-man Jesus in a state of glory. Now we know that Moses and Elijah were not mere apparitions, right? Because it says in the text, they were talking with Jesus. Now Mark did not tell us what they talked about, but Luke did. They talked about the departure. Literally, in the original language, his exodus, which he will accomplish at another mountain, Mount Zion. We read that in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. It was speaking about the redemptive work of Christ through his death. And so the transfiguration of Jesus in the presence of Elijah Moses, and even before his disciples, clearly shows the continuity of God's redemptive plan. From the gracious old covenant into the more gracious and even more glorious new covenant through Jesus who is the Christ. From Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, prophesied by the prophets Moses and Elijah, Received and will be proclaimed by the apostles, Peter, James, and John. So Peter said it right. You are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. Moses prophesied about Jesus. Elijah prophesied about Jesus. In fact, we can go even further to say that Jesus is the true and better Moses. He is the fulfillment of the law himself. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. And we will see that in our passage later. Who shall restore all things? God is comprehended in Christ alone. John Calvin said that. John Calvin discussed that God's people in the Old Covenant placed their faith in God and that according to the prophecies, they may turn their eyes directly to the coming Messiah, who is Christ, as they seek deliverance. Beloved congregation, to believe that Jesus is our Christ is of first importance. It's the only thing, it's the one thing that determines everything else. To be in Him or outside of Him is a question that has eternal consequences. In, is, the question is, is Jesus your Christ? Is Jesus the Savior of your soul? But you see, brothers and sisters, this is not just a matter of being saved and not being saved. It's also a matter of living to magnify your glorious Christ. Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to your family? Who is Christ to your children? Who is Christ to you as a student, as a mother, as a father? Every night I read a book to my children entitled um, Child Story Bible by Voss, Banner of Truth. And the other day we were reading about uh, about Matthew chapter 2 when Herod wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus will be king. And my middle child but in while I was reading and said, oh, Herod doesn't want another king. He doesn't want Jesus to replace him as king. I said, yes. Now, that's a good illustration. The following day, one of my professors said there is really no, no middle ground, no neutrality. It's either you say, Lord, Lord, or you shout, crucify Jesus. He's either your king or not. Who is Christ to us, our family, as a church, determines everything else about us. Is he king over our lives? When my wife and I went to Bataan, it's called Mount Samant, we were there probably 11 years ago. It was on top of a mountain. Uh, it was cloudy that day. And I remember a great cloud passed through. Well, there's, there, was no, there was no voice, okay? Um, spoiler alert, there was no voice from heaven. And the 90-meter-high cross vanished before our eyes. I told my wife back then that what just happened would be a good sermon illustration. 
11 years after I'm using that illustration. So, And here's the point. When our eyes are clouded by our troubled hearts, our lack of faith, doubts, and unbelief, it will cause us to turn our eyes away from the cross. But when our eyes are fixed on Christ, it's like riding that elevator on top of that cross and see everything else through that lens. The author of Hebrews used the clouds of witnesses in the Old Covenant to establish a theological and practical truth. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, Hebrews 12.2. So beloved congregation will look to Christ first and foremost because it will affect how we listen to him. And this brings us to our second point. We listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, verses 5 to 8. Now, interestingly, biologically speaking, a nerve connecting our hearing and our sight affects our balance. Right? So, our sight stability is affected when that nerve has a problem. And both senses are essential. Now the same is true in terms of our faith. Looking to Christ and listening to Him go hand in hand. We established that this morning. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ. But it seemed he was still in denial. Right? Jesus clearly said in the previous chapter, let me quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Chapter 8, verse 31. After Jesus said this, Peter had the audacity to rebuke him. No matter how glorious the transfiguration was and how it was clear what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talked about, Peter, because of his unbelief, had a twisted interpretation of that glorious miracle. He was not listening to the words of Jesus. He said in verse 5, listen to this, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I like the NKJV KJV, NASB, rendering of tents, it says, let us make three tabernacles. What was the reason for this proposal? Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In all reality, he did not need to say anything. If he had paid attention to the words of Christ in the previous chapter, the purpose of the transfiguration would have made sense. Christ's transfiguration was looking forward to his redemptive work and glorious resurrection. Not looking backward into the ways of the old covenant. Peter thought of a plan. Aha! That was a good plan. It is good that we are here. Not sure if you heard the old saying... I heard this from a Dutch pastor up at Michigan. He said, 
If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Peter's proposal, without a doubt, was well meant. But it was almost laughable. His ignorant response was backward into the old ways. He wanted to build tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He failed to see that the transfiguration of Jesus Christ looks forward to the new and better way. That Jesus as the Christ did not need a tabernacle to dwell in. Because Jesus is the Son of God who tabernacled and dwelt among His people. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Beloved congregation, like Peter, in our ignorance of God's will and of God's Word, we tend to put up man-made tabernacles, if you will. Thinking that doing what we think, what we feel and tell ourselves is good, is the way to go. Even when it is already clearly stated in the Scripture what the will of God is. This broken world doubles down on this you know, ridiculous perspective. Listen to your heart. What's more ridiculous about this is that this kind of thinking is being said from the pulpit. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Do what you think is good. No. Listen to God. Follow God. Read His Word. Meditate on it day and night. Catechize your children. Catechize your spouse. Catechize your family, your friends, your neighbors, your workmates. It's as practical as it can get because listening to the words of Jesus is the only way to change our hearts and to change people's hearts. We cannot and will never reason anyone into the kingdom of God. Only the words of Jesus has the power for salvation. Be very discerning, beloved congregation. Like Peter, we may think that what we are doing in our lives, our homes, our families, and in this church is good. But it may not be in accordance with the will of God. Look to Jesus and listen to His words. Mark chapter 9 verse 7 tells us, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now God the Father, on the Mount of Transfiguration, tabernacled among them through the clouds. That's the Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, Shekinah refers to God's dwelling among His people. Shekinah is God visiting His people. In the new, better, and more gracious covenant, God has dwelt among His people through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the cloud by day. Jesus was the fire by night. Now in flesh, and we have seen Him full of glory and grace. Now, God again normatively reveals Himself in word and deed. And that is, again, present in this part of the text. The clouds and the words. 
of the Father. Our response to God's revelation is always obedience. And obedience is always preceded by listening to His commands and succeeding by living according to His commands. Beloved congregation, listening to Jesus is more than just hearing what He has to say. Listening to Jesus because He is the beloved Son of God requires our singular devotion to Him. He alone is Lord. Listen to Him. He alone rules over all. He alone has the final say over everything. And verse 8 illustrates this well. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Now, listening to Jesus translates to two concrete applications. Glorifying God through our word and deed. Again, the same application. It is one thing for Peter to confess that Jesus is Christ. But it's another to live by his confession. It is one thing to confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Lord. It is quite another thing to behold him supreme over our lives. We may with all our hearts say that our eyes are fixed on Jesus and Jesus alone, but at the same time listen to our own wisdom. Beloved congregation, our dilemma as Christians is not primarily to know and do what is good and avoid what is bad. Our greater concern is to discern and obey the will of God. It's not as basic as I'm gonna do I'm gonna go and do good. I'm not gonna go and do bad. No, it's discerning and obeying the will of God. And the more most practical way that we can do that is to receive by faith the preaching of God's word on the Lord's day. The primacy of preaching is as practical as it can get. It's the ordinary means of grace that God uses to nourish His people. Listening to Jesus is important. The disciples were terrified, according to Mark. According to the account of Matthew, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Look in his account said they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They were terrified. But the question is, were their hearts burned within them after witnessing the great miracle? Did they believe what Christ meant as how it was expounded? What Christ meant as how it was expounded in the discourse between two prophets and Jesus? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be faithful to what God has entrusted to us. Listen to the words of Jesus and not the voice of the world. We are called not to be relevant, but to be faithful to God's word. Let us be faithful to what God has entrusted to us. Listen to Jesus. Now as an extended application, we must lay hold of our rich reformed tradition that safeguards us from sin, Satan, and secularism. It could also be said that we must preserve 
the purity of our pulpit. Remind your elders, your pastors, to preach Christ and Christ crucified. can also be said a very basic application to read our Bibles. Do your family worship. Catechize your children. Meditate on God's Word day in and day out. Listen to the words of Jesus. Let us live accordingly. And this brings us to our third and last point. We live as people for whom Christ suffered and rose from the dead. Verses 9 to 13. Now the suffering and resurrection of Christ were the topics of Jesus and the three disciples as they descended from the mountain. One familiar theme in the book of Mark, which is mentioned at least ten times, is how Jesus would not want the disciples or other people, and even demons, to speak about him. Only this time he told the three disciples when would be the right time to speak about him. Verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This makes This makes sense, considering that the resurrection of Christ is the vindication of everything he taught about himself and everything he has done, especially his death on the cross. But in verse 10, the disciples seem seem to not understand what Christ meant about his resurrection from the dead. And probably because they still did not want to think that Jesus, the Messiah, should die. Verse 10 tells us, So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now listen to their question in verse 11. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In every question, there is always an assumption behind. They were referring to the prophecy of Malachi, which is always understood to refer to the day of glory, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is supposed to be glorious, right? Contrary to the idea of Jesus dying. Is it possible they ask the question because they still cannot accept the fact that Jesus needs to suffer and die? There was a doubt in them, an unbelief, even after witnessing a glorious miracle of the transfiguration, if they're, even after listening to Elijah, Moses, and Jesus talking about his exodus to another mountain, his death on the cross on Calvary, did Peter's plan make more sense to them than the plan of God? Did Peter think that by putting up a tabernacle for Jesus, he would not need to die? Well, that makes sense. Think about it. It would be the day of glory that Malachi prophesied about. Peter must have thought that if people would go up to that mountain and see Jesus with Elijah and Moses dwelling in their tabernacles, they would believe that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah. Think about that. That, that makes sense. No. No, Peter. Because the Messiah must suffer first. The Messiah must suffer first. Christ's exaltation must be preceded by his humiliation. 
And that is His gospel work. Jesus said in verses 12 to 13, And He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This words of Jesus is very rich. It's very complex. You know, if you, well, I'm not sure if you have mountains here is in, in Wisconsin because they don't have in Iowa. So the first time we drove there for five hours, it was plain. And uh, it was depressing. <laughs> you were talking, my wife and I were talking in the car. Wow. Because in the Philippines, it's impossible not to see mountain ranges. We have the longest mountain range in the Philippines. If you look at that mountain range from afar, you see a one-dimensional picture, right? But when I was in the Bible college, we did... Uh, a short mission trip in a tribal group at the back of that mountain and it took us 24 hours to drive uh, through a bus going there. So it's plain from afar. But if you go there, it's literally going up of the mountain and going down and bus will have to cross streams of waters. And that's for 24 hours. In the scripture, we have the same theme of the already and not yet. There's a prophecy, there's a partial fulfillment, another fulfillment, and the ultimate fulfillment. And we know that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all the shadows and types from the Old Testament. And his words here has a lot of meanings because we know that Elijah, the prophecy of Malachi, pertains to John the Baptist, right? But he was also at the same time talking about himself as the true and better Elijah that will restore all things. That he is the better and true Elijah. That he is the true and better John the Baptist, right? He is speaking a lot of wonderful truths in this, in this, in this, in this verses. But the point is, John the Baptist and his ministry of preparing the way of the Messiah fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. But this is one of those shadow fulfillment that has its immediate fulfillment and final fulfillment. John the Baptist was Elijah coming and preparing the way for the glorious Messiah. But Jesus is the true and better Elijah who shall restore all things. Elijah and John the Baptist preach about the Messiah who shall restore all things. And the question is how? And that is what the disciples missed. A crucial component of Jesus' saving work was suffering and death. His suffering and death. They were so focused on the theme of exaltation that they could not grasp that Christ's exaltation must be preceded first by his humiliation. Beloved congregation, exaltation is preceded by humiliation. Jesus descended from the mountain of transfiguration onto the way of Calvary. As he, from his exalted place in the heavenly places, 
came down and became man to live the life we cannot live and suffer, suffer on our behalf and die the death we should have died for our salvation, for our sanctification, and for our glorification. It is only fitting that we live and have our being to His glory and for the sake of the gospel, even if that means we must suffer. Though there was ignorance, unbelief, and doubt in the hearts and minds of Peter and James and John, we know that Jesus was gracious to them, right? And He is gracious to us as well. In our shortcomings, our unbelief, ignorance, and doubts. You know, car conversations are the best. Yesterday we were driving and we were talking about suffering and I was sharing with my wife a sermon that I will be preaching next week on Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 to 30. If you want to hear the sermon, you should invite me again <clears throat> next time that you need a pulpit supply. But I was telling her that Paul used a very wonderful picture in Philippians chapter 1, particularly in verses 28, 29, and 30, when he said, It was granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And the word granted there, I'm not sure why it was translated as granted, but it's the same word as grace. So the more literal translation is God graced you, your faith that you believe, and God graced you with suffering. And Paul in verse 30, if you notice him, I assume he was ba he's basically proud that the church in Philippi was enduring the same conflict that he had with the Roman citizens in Philippi when he was imprisoned. And he said, we share in that same conflict. And God uses that suffering to grow us in our faith. God graced us with sufferings so that he can grow us in our faith. Peter, James, and John, after the resurrection of Christ, we see how God mightily used them. From their ignorance, brashness, pride, unbelief, and immaturity, to their powerful ministry, and ultimately, their martyrdoms for the sake of the gospel of Christ. It made sense to them that exaltation must be preceded by humiliation. Because they lived and died for the sake of the gospel. They witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. They witnessed His transfigured body while He was hanging on the cross. They witnessed the transformed and glorified Jesus Christ in His resurrection. And they were never the same again. The religion of the open tomb is a religion of hope. We are a people of hope. We are hopeful people. And when our hearts are set on eternal hope, again, it changes the way how we live our lives in the here and now. 
So let us live as people for whom Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead. As we end, beloved congregation, Jesus restores all things. Let us run to Him. He is our city of refuge. If you are here this evening and think you are too broken to get fixed, you are not. The same grace that overcame the disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings is the same grace that will save you, keep you, and restore you. Let us look to Him, run to Him. Let us pray, Lord, help me and help my unbelief. If you are here tonight and you know in your heart of hearts that you love God and want to honor Him in your life, in your family and vocations, but you do not know how, listen to Jesus. Receive the preaching of God's Word in your heart. The Spirit of God will help you understand. The Spirit of God will help you live according to the Word of God and the will of God. Now, if you are here tonight and know that what you profess with your mouth is not, con- is not consistent with how you live your life, run to Jesus. He waits for you. He wants to forgive you and restore you. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of that habitual and secret sins that drag you away from your Christ, that robs your joy. Run away from those things that drain life in you and run to Christ and receive life and live life truly and fully. To our church, Grace URC, look and listen to Jesus and live for Him Looking and listening to Jesus and living for Him is not and will never be accomplished outside the community of God's covenant people. That's impossible. It's impossible to behold the glory of God outside of the church. It's impossible to hear God's word outside of the church. It's impossible to live the Christian life outside of the church. And so let us help one another to grow in our affection for Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, again we are thankful and grateful for the undeserved grace that you have given to us through your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are but sinners deserving of your wrath, of your judgment, of eternal condemnation. But there is therefore now no condemnation because we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so may you help us.